If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. A few weeks ago, I had mentioned that I was going to be presenting at the Centerlink Leadership Summit, and it was my plan to actually record those presentations and then share them with you, our podcast listeners. I thought it would be a great opportunity for you to hear some audience feedback, get some real questions that were coming from the audience, and kind of enrich your entire experience. I brought a lapel mic with me. And uh, as fate would have it, while that lapel mic tested really well in my home studio, it did not work quite so well in a larger room. And so the sound quality for neither of the presentations was exactly what I would want it to be here on the podcast. Now, the first presentation was on hiring right. And so that's what this episode is going to focus on, how you as a nonprofit can do an even better job of hiring your team members, of hiring your staff. So most executives often are able to go back and say this, and this is certainly true for me. My biggest successes and my greatest failures have all been about the people that I have hired. And that's essentially how over the past many years I have crafted a very different hiring process. You know, if currently about one out of every four people that you're hiring are duds, people that, you know, don't work out for one reason or another, imagine if you could cut that in half and only one out of every eight did not work out. You would be able to spend so much more time on executing your mission and so much less time on managing HR problems. Now, we actually had several possible running titles for this presentation. One of them, um, and this is actually not the one that Centerlink chose, but it was actually my favorite, is you can't soar with the eagles if you're hiring turkeys. And another one, another title was the five mind shifts to changing your hiring process. 
But either way, this presentation is about how you can develop a more effective hiring process that will really drive your organization forward at a much faster rate. And what we explore in this presentation are five mind shifts to really making better hiring decisions. So let's jump right into it. The very first mind shift is that as organizations and as hiring managers, we need to stop lying to our job candidates. You know, I hate to sound this way, but there are typically two people that really stretch the truth. I won't say lie, but really stretch the truth in the hiring process. Those are the hiring manager and then also the candidates. So we can't control what candidates say and whether or not they stretch the truth. But we can control what the hiring manager says. And you know, so often, hiring managers really just put the best possible picture together for candidates. You know, they don't really say, hey, let's be really clear and upfront with you what the issues are with working here. And you know, some common lies are things like, oh yeah, we offer great life-work balance. Or, oh, we always work together harmoniously. We have some our differences, but we always work them out in a way where absolutely everybody is happy. Now, you know, for the most part, in probably 80 to 90% of the organizations, that's stretching the truth just a little too far. Now, in the presentation at this point, I put up on the screen a photo of a couple of people by the side of the road that are breaking really big stones into smaller paving stones and landscaping stones. And I took that picture when I was on a motorcycle trip in Vietnam. I spent about um, two months in Vietnam and Cambodia when I was on sabbatical. And, you know, typically when I was on this trip, if I saw people doing a job that I had never done before, I might hop off the motorcycle and, you know, offer to pay them a little bit for them to teach me how they do what they do. It was kind of a unique and interesting experience and, you know, frankly, a way that I got to get a better sense of, you know, what the everyday experience for a Vietnamese person might be like. And so if you were to see this picture at the show notes, you would see these two people. One is kind of in a beige uh, jacket, another is in a pink jacket, and, you know, the, both of them are hunched over these really big rocks. And if I were thinking about maybe what the hiring manager might say to these two folks, they might say, oh my gosh, this is a great place to work. We offer a paid exercise program. And by paid exercise program, of course, they mean, hey, you get to break rocks all day long from humongous boulders into small paving stones and small landscaping stones. And then they might say, and we offer incentive pay. But when you dug into it, what that would really mean is that those two individuals are paid by the number of landscaping stones they actually make every single day. And then the last thing that the hiring manager might say is, oh, and we have promotion opportunities, which means that, well, if one of these two people gets seriously injured, the other person becomes the boss. So, you know, I think so often in the nonprofit sector, we do this as well, where we just try to put the rosiest possible spin on the job. And we're not being honest with our candidates about what it's actually like. Now, the second mind shift is you can't fix fit. And I just cannot say this enough. You cannot fix fit. If a candidate's not a good fit, they're never going to be a good fit. There is nothing that you can do that will help make them a good fit. 
And let me give you an example of this. Let's say you have a data specialist position open. And, you know, you found someone who's interviewed really well. They've got great qualifications. Their references check out. But, you know, when you when they presented the interview, they seem pretty extroverted and pretty outgoing. And when you look at their resume, they have a pretty extroverted and outgoing resume. So what does that actually mean? Well, you know, that might mean, for example, they've been a case manager and then they had um, a job where they were a corporate trainer and, you know, then they had a job where they led tours, let's say. So really extroverted types of jobs where, you know, they really have to go out in front of people or with people and interact. But you're not considering them for a case manager or a trainer job. No, you're considering them for a data specialist position. Now, of course, they've done what you would expect they would do. They have sold themselves in the interview process. They have said, oh my gosh, I am so burned out working with people. What I really want is just to sit in front of a computer all day and enter numbers. But, you know, things just aren't checking out. Because, as I said, the person is presenting in a really extroverted way in the interviews. And you look at every single one of their jobs and they've been really extroverted that person's not going to be a good fit for a data specialist who's literally just going to sit in a cube or in an office all day and punch numbers into a computer. Now, the same is also true, right? So, you know, if you have a job that requires some extroversion and a lot of empathy, say the person is a case manager or a social worker, and those both of those jobs require a tremendous amount of empathy, and you sit down with someone and everything else about them is great, but they just don't really seem to exude empathy, probably not a good fit for your case manager or social worker position. So no matter how hard we want to fix fit, we just can't. And as a hiring manager, I have certainly made that mistake where I thought, you know, maybe this person really wants a change, or maybe this person can gain these core personality traits that are going to be necessary for them to be successful. And you know what? Every single time I thought that, I made a bad hire. Because let me say it one more time, you can't fix fit. Now, the third mind shift is that an empty seat is better than a bad hire. Now, let's take a step back and think about that for just a second. You know, you post a position, let's say you post a case manager position. And you probably, if you're in a larger city, you'll probably get about 100 to 150 resumes. And of those, if you're lucky, 8 to 10% are probably qualified. So let's say you have 12 qualified candidates. You reach out to all 12, four are no longer interested, either they don't want to leave their current job or they found another job. And so now you've got eight possible candidates. And you know, you just you just remembered you can't fix fit and you're going through and none of these eight seem like a really good fit for your organization or for you as a hiring manager. Well, that's where this very true maxim comes in that an empty seat is better than a bad hire. It is far better that you have to say to your board or if you're just a hiring manager, not the executive director, you have to say to your executive director and your funders and your community and everyone who works with this position, hey, I'm really sorry that we can't achieve our goals right now, but we just have not found the right candidate. That sounds a whole lot better than having to tell your board, your executive director, your funders, other people that work with this person, hey, 
you know, we're really sorry we have a lot of turnover in this position, or we're really sorry we have someone who's not doing the job well. We just keep making bad hires. So it's always better to have to tell folks, hey, we've not found the right person, and that's why we're not making progress. So always remember, an empty seat is far better than a bad hire. Now, the fourth mind shift that we presented is somewhat controversial, and that is to encourage candidates to vet you. So what that specifically means is any question that you might be wanting to ask a candidate, a candidate should be, frankly, encouraged to turn that question back around to you. And so it is not at all uncommon in an interview to ask someone, so what are your greatest challenges in your prior positions? And so you should not be at all upset or concerned if a candidate were to turn that around and ask you as the hiring manager, so what have been your greatest challenges as a manager? And, you know, what have you done to pivot or to to overcome those challenges? Another way that I think you can always encourage candidates to vet you is to encourage that they go and they talk to other people within the organization. So, you know, they should be asking people who report to that hiring manager, hey, what is Dolph really like to work for? And I got to be frank, I'm, I am a little bit of a quirky boss and I'm probably a little bit of a tough boss. So I would always rather someone ask folks who currently work for me, hey, what is it like to work with Dolph than for someone to come in and frankly be a little shocked or taken aback by my management style, which is, you know, frankly, a pretty direct, um, straightforward kind of a style. But regardless of how you think about it, Anything that you're asking your candidates to go through, you as a hiring manager and you as an organization should be willing to share the exact same type of information with that candidate. And of course, what that also means, and this kind of you know, relates back to not lying to your candidates, being really open and upfront about the skeletons in your closet. Now, it's typically at this point in the presentation that someone will say to me, Dolph, those first four mind shifts sound incredible. But if we are completely honest with our candidates, and if we are unwilling to hire someone who is a bad fit, and if we believe that it's better to just leave a chair empty than it is to fill it, we're gonna, we probably aren't going to find anyone to fill our positions, and then we're just going to have nobody. We're going to have no staff members to do our work. So, Dolph, those just aren't practical for us. We can't do that. And typically when people say this to me, and of course I've got a slide on this in the presentation, I describe two very different jobs and how they're marketed to people. So let me tell you six important things about this first job that I describe. And by the way, it is on the organization's website. They are completely and totally upfront about it. So the first thing is that there is a three-month pre-employment training program, and there is no guarantee that you will be hired if you do not complete that program. The second thing is, as part of that program, you are required to learn another language. And once again, if you don't become fluent, you're going to get fired. So imagine this for a minute. You quit your job. You may even move cities on the hope that you're going to get through a three-month training program that also requires that you become conversationally fluent. And if you don't, well, you just quit your job and maybe move to another city for no good reason because now you don't have a job. 
The third thing that they say is that you are responsible for your personal and professional conduct 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That's right. They pretty much say you might not be on the clock, but we still hold you accountable for what you do. You are always representing our organization. And guess what? If you do something that we think is wrong, you're going to be disciplined and you might even be terminated. Now, this same organization will warn you that you're probably going to leave home and you're probably not going to return for about 27 months. And what's more, when you are living there overseas for the next 27 months, you will likely live without running water. And this is, by the way, is the part that I love. You may not have reliable electricity. Oh, and by the way, The website also warns you that you're going to be paid less than the minimum wage in the United States. So you don't have job security. You're definitely underpaid. You're living in, frankly, conditions that we would think of as inhabitable and substandard. And you're not going to get to see your family or friends. And you're pretty much always at work because you're responsible for what you do 24 hours a day. Now, if you've not already figured it out, that is how the Peace Corps markets itself to prospective candidates. I have presented this twice, and in both of those rooms, I've had someone who's raised their hand and goes, oh my gosh, yes, I applied for the Peace Corps and I did not get in. And here's why. The Peace Corps is completely and totally upfront about what they need in their candidates, and they have more candidates, frankly, than they have slots for. And that allows them to be very, very selective. So you don't need 150 great candidates for one slot. You need two or three really great candidates for that one slot. Now, let me share with you job number two, because you might say, okay, Dolph, really smart, really funny. You pulled out one, the Peace Corps, but there's no other job that is that upfront about how hard and difficult the job is going to be that anybody really wants. So this second job, it requires also about three months of training, sometimes four. It requires a thorough background check. And when I say thorough, they do a criminal history check, they do a credit check, and they also do a psychological test. Now, I would never, ever suggest that you... um, you engage in psychological testing of your candidates, but this organization does. Now, what's more, when they, when they talk about working conditions on their website, they're very clear that you, if hired, will work 24-hour shifts, you will work more than 50 hours a week, and you should expect to work holidays and weekends, especially in your first 10 years of employment. Yeah, that's right. For your first 10 years of employment, you should plan on being away from your family on holidays and weekends. Now, I also pulled some stats on this. So this was not on their website. But in 2017, 18% of the people that did this job were injured on the job. And 14% of the people who did this job were exposed to hazardous materials like asbestos, radioactive waste, that kind of thing. And by the way, 2% were exposed to infectious diseases. Now, a couple more things that are on the website. It is a physically grueling job. You have to be willing to carry 65 to 80 pounds for hours at a time while you're on duty. And by the way, the starting pay, probably about $31,000. 
So let's recap job number two. They require training. They require a thorough background check. You're going to work your took us off, right? 24-hour shifts, working holidays, working weekends, working more than 50 hours a week. There's a high likelihood you're going to get injured or exposed to something that's hazardous. You are going to be exhausted and physically destroy your body carrying 65 or 80 pounds almost every single day you go to work. And by the way, you're only going to be getting $31,000 a year. Now that, my dear listeners, that is the firefighter's life. Now, one of the reasons I love describing this is because there are three types of people when, you, when, it, when a fire breaks out. So the first type of people run away from the fire. Not saying that's wrong at all. If you know that you do not have whatever it takes to help in that situation, you need to look after your own safety. You know that you need to run away. The second type of people will get kind of on the perimeter of the fire, pull out their phones, and take a video of it, hoping that they can sell it or get some likes on Facebook, which is, you know, kind of like selling it in an intangible way. But, you know, essentially, you have voyeurs. And then the slimmest percentage of the people that are like, oh my gosh, there's a building on fire. I have to run to that building right now, and I have to see how I can be of help. Can I save people? Can I help put the fire out? And If what you're hiring for is your local fire department, that is the slim sliver of the population that you want. And so I use these two examples so that you can fully and clearly understand that you can be very specific about what it is you need. And if you put it out there, how hard the job is, the drawbacks of the job, as well, frankly, as the benefits, you know, Peace Corps says it is the toughest job you'll ever love then you are much more likely to get the candidate that you want. Now, the final piece that you absolutely, the final mind shift, I should say, that you absolutely need to be thinking about is that throughout this hiring process, you must be committed to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And from my perspective, I think that means a number of things. And I'm just going to throw a few examples out there. The very first example is I would strongly encourage you in your job descriptions to have minimum requirements and then separately, in a separate section, list out your preferred requirements. And here is why. Those of us who have walked around all or most of our lives with a lot of privilege are people who, quite frankly, will look at a list of requirements and even those things that they do not actually meet, say, for example, it requires five years and they only have three, You know, people who've had a lot of privilege in their life will think, we have only had three, but gee, I seem to get a lot of lucky breaks, so I should just go ahead and, you know, throw my hat in the ring, right? But what we also know is that people who have walked around with less privilege in their life are more likely to look at just one single list of requirements and not see the word preferred in front of it or preferred in parentheses after it. And so, for example, you know, if it says... um, five years of experience preferred, three years minimum, someone who's walked around with less privilege may think to themselves, hey, you know what? They really want five years and not three years, so I'm not going to apply. They, they really want someone with five years. And so the first thing you can do is separate out very clearly what is the minimum requirement and what is the preferred requirement, and then hold true to the minimum requirement. 
If your minimum requirement is only three years, or if your minimum requirement is only a bachelor's degree, then you need to consider everyone who meets those minimum requirements. And that's the other part of the key, to not say, well, you know, we have 15 candidates, eight of them meet all the requirements, including the preferred requirements, and seven of them only meet the minimum. You know, if you've said that's the minimum to do the job, you should probably have a conversation with those seven that just meet the minimum as well. So that's one example of how you really need to be thinking about diversity, equity, and inclusion throughout the process. Another example, frankly, is how you treat um, internal versus external hires. And so, you know, do you, do you ever as an organization just promote people from within without making them go through the full hiring process? Now, that, of course, would mean that you'd have to post the position externally, post it internally, and once again, consider all qualified candidates. Now, this also assumes that as an organization, you are posting your positions very broadly, that you are making sure that you are including your position postings in media that reach communities of color, folks who are trans and gender non-binary, folks who remember the LGBTQ community, women communities, etc. So, you know, if you are not really trying to post broadly, if you're not reaching out to some of the key stakeholders in diverse and inclusive communities and asking them to make sure that they help you broadcast your postings, requiring external postings may not be as valuable for your DEI efforts. And finally, in those postings and throughout the way in which your organization positions itself in the community, are you always being clear that the organization strongly encourages applicants and participation from people among diverse communities and inclusive communities? So those are the five mind shifts that I strongly encourage you to think about so that you can be even more effective at hiring. Now, this is about the halfway point of the presentation, and typically the podcast is about 25 or 30 minutes. So this is the perfect point for us to stop. And in the next podcast episode, we're going to do the second half of the presentation, where we're going to cover your entire recruitment process. And so, you know, that means obviously, specifically, your job description, your posting, and then your how you screen your resumes, how you interview candidates, how you test candidates' skills to make sure they're actually able to do the job, and then, of course, how you vet and research those candidates and make an offer. So, gosh, I hope you tune in to the next episode, and I think there's going to be a few more mind shifts that we're going to throw at you to really help you have an even more effective hiring process. Now, Before we close out the episode, let me just say a few words. First of all, please, please go online, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. If you've not already connected with me on LinkedIn or on Facebook, then go ahead and do that as well. But that, dear listeners, is our show for this week. I hope you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. I am not an accountant or attorney, and neither I nor the Goldberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. This material has been provided for informational purposes only, is not intended to provide, and should not be relied on for tax, legal, or accounting advice. Always consult a qualified, licensed professional about such matters.